Monday night at 10 o'clock, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that mixes comics and politics. This is the show for folks who know that true superheroes help people no matter where they're from. Tonight we've got an awesome... Yeah, (laughs) you like that one. Uh, We've got an awesome special guest, someone that we've wanted to interview for quite a while, and there's a great new series out that gave us a great excuse to invite her on. Uh, Marjorie Marjorie Liu is going to be joining us in a minute or two, but let me first uh, welcome my co-host, Alana. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I've been a huge fan of Marjorie since I first read her Black Widow comic years ago, so I'm really excited to have her joining us today. All right, so uh, before we start going in with questions, for those who don't know who she is, other than she's an amazing writer, just go Google her and basically buy up everything that she's written. Uh, She's known for uh, not just comic books, but fiction as well. She teaches comic book writing at MIT. She leads class on popular fiction at the Voices Our Nation workshop. Um, She's written Dark Wolverine, NYX No No Way Home, X-23, Black Widow, The Name of Rose, um, Astonishing X-Men. She's won uh, or been nominated for GLAAD Media Awards uh, for Outstanding Media Images of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Community. Um, she wrote the story for the animated film Avengers Confidential, Black Widow, and Punisher. Um, and her latest series, Monstrous, is um, getting tons of praise, which is super well-deserved. Uh, it's original creator-owned comic book series uh, with Japanese artist Sana Takeda. Did I pronounce that one right? Uh-huh. Um, excellent. Uh, it's set in an alternate matriarchal 1920s Asia and follows a girl's struggle to survive the trauma of war with a cast of girls and monsters and set against the richly imagined aesthetic of Art Deco and uh, inflected steampunk. The first issue was an instant hit. It sold out. You can still get it digitally. Uh, there will be a second printing coming out, I think, the first week of December, if I remember right off the top of my head. Uh, on top of all that, she's also the author of more than 19 novels and lectures and speaks and very in demand because she's awesome. Uh, so, Marjorie, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for having me and for that, that really lovely introduction. <laughs> <laughs> We're fans if you haven't figured that part out. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Uh, so the first question I always like to ask our guests, um, how you actually got into writing comic books and involved in the industry? Well, this is, it's, it's, it's sort of a long story, but I guess I'll, I'll shorten it um, just so I don't bore anyone. Um, you know, I was a novelist. I was a novelist, and uh, um, I had an opportunity to write an X-Men novel. Um, pocket Books, Simon Schuster had signed a licensing deal with Marvel to publish prose novels based off of the properties. And so they were doing Spider-Man and the Avengers and the X-Men. And at the time, the Spider-Man movie was coming out, so everyone was hot on that. Um, no one had submitted a proposal for the X-Men, which I thought was just absolutely shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so I submitted, yeah, I submitted a proposal. Um, the, editor, uh, the editor liked it. Um, I ended up writing a book that was called X-Men Dark Mirror in which the um, the X-Men one day wake up in a uh, psychiatric hospital and they're not in their bodies. And so Wolverine is in the body of a woman, Jean Grey is in the body of a man, and the gender swapping was a lot of fun to do. Um, the guys at Marvel happened to like my character work, they liked the book, and that gave me the courage to introduce myself at the first New York Comic Con back in 2006. Um, and I basically said, you know, if you guys need a writer, um, <laughs> ever here I am. And amazingly enough, they took me up on that. And about two or three years later, I did NYX, and that was my first 
that was my first book at Marvel, and um, the rest is more or less history. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, so I was really NY- lucky. Yeah. <laughs> NYX at that point, like, I, I don't remember it being a huge breakout. I mean, do you like, see a lot of potential in that kind of universe? I mean, there's been a you certain Marvel- character of NYX that became that's huge, huge since yeah. then. But, I mean, did you kind of, like, see... Well, you know, at the time, actually, I, was, um, I wasn't even looking at it like that. I was grateful to have an opportunity to write comics and write at Marvel. And the characters themselves, Kaiden and Tatiana, um, all of them were really, really interesting to me. Just the idea that there are these teenage kids, um, they more or less have banded together to make their own family, um, and they have these powers. And what happens when you're disenfranchised, when you're young, when you have power, and you're trying to be a good person, you're trying to find your 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 place in life, and you're you know you're trying to actually just also survive. And the story itself and the characters just offered me a really um, interesting opportunity to tell that story in a medium that I had no experience in. Um, I really had to learn. Um, I had great mentorship in my editor John Barber and assistant editor uh, Michael Horwitz, um, and between them and Google. I more or less taught myself how to write comics, and um, and it was just this amazing opportunity to, to just try something new. So um, I was. It wasn't exactly a breakout book, um, but for me it was it was a it was a breakout book in the sense that it allowed me this opportunity. Um, because from there I transitioned to almost immediately to Dark Wolverine. Mm-hmm. And it was such an initiative for Marvel. Like, it was Marvel finally being like, oh, I guess we should try to do something in this format that girls seem to like and maybe have girl characters and maybe have a woman write it. Sort of seemed like a... a Maybe. You know, it was interesting. Yeah, possibly. You know, at the time, I was so naive. Um, You know, I, in the sense that I I didn't really understand... I didn't understand the industry. You know, I was was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And I came in. And I was like, okay, you know, here I am writing. And it wasn't until um, it wasn't until I would say at my first comic book convention, um, San Diego Comic Con, when I was sitting on a stage with like twelve other dudes, and I was the only woman. And um, and suddenly it hit me in a really profound way. Yeah, okay, you know, um, I had come from a side of publishing, uh, writing, you know, science fiction, urban fantasy, romance novels that was primarily uh, for women and by women. And I was surrounded um, very much by women in uh, in that arm of publishing. And then to come to comics, which was all men, and books written for the male gaze, more or less. And so, um, and that, you know, but again, like, that, it wasn't until I, I think I really hit San Diego Comic-Con um, that that became really clear to me, really, really clear, clear to me in ways that I hadn't really thought about or been aware of until that moment. And then once my eyes were opened, it was kind of, you just can't unsee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When it comes and then to the, you really were given, sorry. I was going to say, when it, when it comes to the writing itself, like the, the just the prose versus the comics, you know, how different is it to create? You said you kind of had to teach yourself how to write a comic. Um, you know, what mm-hmm. what really is the difference between the two for those who might not know? Well, so um, here's the thing. Uh the comic book medium um, is the perfect middle ground between prose and film. So in prose, um, your typical novel, et cetera, um, you're very much able to capture the interiority of the character. You can see inside their minds. You're living in their world. 
Um, everything is is just your it's it's built so that it's built for maximum reader immersion. You know, uh, whether it's the world, whether it's it's like being inside the character's head, etc. Now, film, on the other hand, um, is 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 a visual medium in which we see action. You know, it's like uh, where it captures action beautifully. It captures scope, scale, in ways that that prose doesn't necessarily allow you to. But comics, they do both. You can have, you can capture, you can have the interiority of the character. Um, you know, you can have like all the the pleasures, the narrative pleasures of of, of prose, but at the same time, um, you can see it. It's like it's like film. It's like having the film, you know, on the page. So that's really interesting. That's really as a as a writer, as a as an artist, that's a very very interesting medium to be able to work in. Um, now the other thing though that can be problematic if you don't if you don't really think about it is that when you're writing a script now a script is uh, for those who who are having trouble picturing it think of a screenplay um that's what your your typical you know script might look like except your script is only going to be seen by maybe you know a small handful of people and you're not writing your script for an editor you're writing your script for one person which is your artist um, your artist is your, you know, you have you you're, you're serving two masters when you write a comic book script. On one hand, you are serving um, the artist who is going to be bringing this story to life, but then on the other hand, you're also serving your your future reader who is going to be reading the story. And so, you know, you have to you have to write a script in some ways for your artist, but you also can't lose track of the fact that you are also you are you are telling. A narrative. You have to, you know, you have to have all the standard narrative pleasures of character, world, conflict, um, and you know, as someone who was writing novels, it was easy to do these things or easier to do these things because you can write a 400-page novel um, and realize at the end, oh, you know what, I, 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 I broke something, I made a mistake, you know, and it's easy to go back in the beginning and fix it. Um, you can't do that with comics. Um, well, not unless you've you've written you know all all like all all the issues of your first arc before you even hand them you know off to your artist you know that then maybe mm-hmm. yeah you can do that but that doesn't actually typically happen um, and so y- the amount of planning that's involved outlining sort of knowing where you're going with the story um, becomes very very important um, and too you know there are other skills involved with with breaking scenes up into moments and. The pacing and the pacing in comics is very different than in novels because, again, in novels you're working with a much longer. You're looking; it's an endurance race. It's a, you know it's a much larger scale. In comics, um, you have maybe 20 pages in an ongoing to tell your story or to tell your part of the story. So every panel counts, every word counts. It's sort of like a it's sort of like poetry in that regard. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's I can you know I teach this so I, I could go on you know I it's it requires almost like a full semester actually <laughs> to kind of you know to to get the fundamentals across but it's um uh, I love it like I actually like thinking about it. I can tell yeah it's really great because a lot of times people <laughs> have a hard time answering that question but we're like she teaches this stuff I think it's going to be a good answer <laughs> so. Thank you. That's really great to have. 
Um, oh, you know, I, I really do want to spend most of our time talking about Monstrous because I'm completely obsessed mm-hmm. with it, but I also would be remiss <laughs> without hitting a little bit on, you know, at least your work uh, on Marvel because, you know, between Dark Wolverine and X-23 and Black Widow, it feels like, you know, you were, did a lot of work in some cases like inventing and in, in some cases reinventing or in some cases like just really capturing the spirit of like three characters that are really beloved to a female and or queer fan base that um, mm-hmm. has like been really ravenous for like characters of those, like, uh, uh, you know, of like before. And these are characters who are not idealized, you know, they're, one of them is certainly a villain a great deal of the time. The other two are, you know, kind of anti-heroes. Um, what do you feel like has been the same and, dim- and the same and different, but on working on them for you? And like, what have you really feel like is your sort of trademark contribution to some of those titles? Um, wow. Okay. Um, great question. Um, the thing is, I feel like that, you know, to address something that you said in your question, we are all hungry for representation. Um, there is not there is not enough representation in the world that can ca- like there is so much work that needs to be done to catch up with the hunger and the demand that is out there that people feel to find you know to find stories where they where they are mirrored you know um, mm-hmm. whether it's whether it's sexual, whether it's race, whether it's gender, um, there's not enough. There's just not enough because there hasn't been the diversity of voices that's, you know, that's needed. And so um, in some ways, you know, I'm not even sure we're at the point yet where we're playing catch-up. I mean, we're just at the point, I feel like, where we're just trying to, you know, to get these, you know, to get people in positions where, where they can start just, doing the work that's needed. Um, with Dark Wolverine, with X-23, with Black Widow, the one thing that united them all in my mind in very different ways was that these were characters that lived on the margins. Um, these were characters that not only lived on the margins, but survived there and were making lives for themselves um, and doing so with with courage, with intelligence, um, you know, making their mark in really, really just incredible ways. Um, you know, I'm, I, it's funny, when I talk about characters that I really, really like, in some ways, you know, I, I invest them with a lot of life in my head. So they feel like people to me. So when I think about these three characters, you know, I'm thinking of them as actual people. And, I'm, you know, I'm not crazy. I know they're not. But it actually <laughs> helps me in my work when, when I'm thinking, okay, you know, what would so-and-so do? And really putting myself in their shoes, but not just in their shoes, but down to the psychology. Okay, does this make sense for this person? Um, you know, so I think if, if anything could be said, you know, I don't like writing action scenes. I'm not good at them. But the one thing that I really enjoyed about writing these three characters was, and, and the same with the X-Men, um, was that I really wanted to bring I wanted to I wanted them to be real people. And I want not just in a in a in a superhero universe, but I wanted to root them firmly in what felt like our world and what the real world would feel like if you had um if you had this, you know, the son of the that the biracial son of um biracial bisexual son of Wolverine 
you know, what he would feel like. No, you know, keeping the superhero costumes to a minimum. Like, I, I've always tried to keep the, the, the spandex to a minimum because I feel like it distracts. I feel like it's very distracting, mm-hmm. and it takes away from from what is really the root of these characters. Um, these characters are, like, really deep and complex in ways that have nothing to do with their costumes. Um, they weren't made by their costumes. They weren't formed by their costumes. They were formed by things that happened much earlier that were, you know, that, that were deeply... Um, informative. And so, you know, we've got like, so yeah, like Dark Wolverine, you know, I had created by Daniel Way and Dan and I had, you know, such an amazing time writing him because he was, um, he was bad. He was evil. He's a psychopath, but, but also maybe he was like seeing a really bad guy on his journey to becoming a hero. And that was deeply, deeply intriguing. And it allowed us a lot of freedom because he was bad. And so it allowed, you know, we could just play. We could play with him in ways that were really subversive. Um, Subversive in ways that I'm not sure we could now. Uh, I don't know if Dark Wolverine could be published now at Marvel. Um, It was very much, I think, a product of its time. And to some degree, X-23 as well. Um, You know, X-23 is another very dark character. You know, she's a child soldier. And her journey is one in which, you know, um, she is trying to find her life, her voice. Um, She is trying to make space for herself, you know, in a world that has never allowed her any space of her own. Um, Mm -hmm. She has always been treated as an object, as a thing whose body is owned by others, which is actually um, a good metaphor, I think, for a lot of, you know, young women who feel like they don't have space to be themselves. Um, to make choices for themselves. And so, you know, um, X-23 was was a character that was very near and dear to my heart. Um, And she was also another joy to write, but uh, a very dark, in some ways, um, painful joy sometimes um, because this was was a girl, this was a a teenager who carried a lot of pain with her and and pain that needed to be explored. Um, Not, again, in a, a real, like, you know... Um, pow, bang, you know, superhero sort of way, but in a very real, you know, what what would it be like? What would it be like to be the subject of an experiment, you know, and to be a sex, you know, to be turned out like, you know, as a prostitute, to be used as a, as a murderer, you know, from a young age. Like, that's uh-huh. a really terrible thing. And in some ways, I feel like she and Black Widow are are part of the same, different sides of the same coin. Um, Black Widow, in some ways, she was also a, a, turned into a soldier, um, you know, mind controlled, et cetera. And she, though, she is at the, she is an adult woman. She is a woman who has come through. She has gone on the journey that X twenty three was going on, and she is at the other end. And she is a woman who has found a way to make her life her own, um, to not only like survive but just flourish. And she's, in my mind, the most dangerous woman in the world. And and you know, like just this this spectacular character that X twenty three could become mm-hmm. um, with maturity. And so that was, you know, when I was writing X twenty three towards the end of the series, I very much wanted um, Black Widow to be X twenty three's mentor because I felt like character wise, it made total sense to link the two of them. Like it just it just felt just right that Black Widow would instinctively understand X-23 and what she's been through. And that in Black Widow, X-23 could find, uh, you know, 
a a female mentor, an adult woman, you know, not just a, a fellow teen, but an actual woman who could mentor her and guide her in ways that would be actually useful. That, that, that really nails it. I mean, one of the things that we've listed on the show a lot is that, you know, when, when the Avengers film came out, there was such an opportunity to really tap into an audience uh, in the public that was super hungry for stuff on Black Widow because everybody loved her. Mm-hmm. And you were just like, ah, how come the Black, how come like, your specific like Black, Black Widow run like wasn't just like put out as a release as part of that movie because I know that for myself, I went around and still do, and that's why I don't actually have it on my shelf right now, loan that little, that you know, loan your, your run on Black Widow to people who like saw the movies, love the character, and don't know anything about the comics and don't know anything beyond that because it just really captures, I think, what's unique about her and she's a character that is so easy to, to, to fuck up, frankly. Um, oh, that's it, very it, kind. It's so, so, I mean, it really is. And you should just, actually, that would be true of all three of them. Like, you know, I, I'm bisexual and there's such a bisexual trope about like, oh, dangerous bisexual people who like, you can't be trusted. And you did this whole story <laughs> and it's like great. And it's so like risky that, you know, um, it would have been really easy to, 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 get, to get that wrong. But um, you, you nailed all of these really tricky characters. So, Thank you. Yeah. Is that actually, I mean, I was curious, though, when you said that you've been able to do a Marvel now, is, is, is there any particular reason? I mean, maybe I'm, just, maybe I'm just projecting. Maybe I'm just projecting. But, you know, based off of some of my experiences in the last couple of years, I think that, um, I think that Marvel has become very cautious. Um, and I think that there's a lot of um, that that they're looking outward. They're looking outward at, at television properties. That, you know, they're not just about publishing right now. And yeah. I, I, again, I think I, it's not, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn. I mean, I, I think perhaps, um, I mean, I, to be blunt, it's not, it's not what it was it, back in, you know, when I started back in like 2007, 2008. Um, it does feel like a much more cautious environment, um, and not, uh, you know. And there have been some really amazing, amazing breakthroughs, like Miss Marvel, um, which was just an absolute gem, an absolute yeah. gem. And you know, and um, Sana, the editor, and G Willow Wilson, they pushed and they fought and they got this book done, and it's been done beautifully. And so yeah. there are so when I when I say this I I say it with some hesitation because it is not the case you know across the board, um, but you know I, I don't know again maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong maybe I'm I'm reading too much into certain things, um, but that's just a little bit of my sense. Mm-hmm. No, that's understandable. It's an interesting perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of things where you do have just tons of artistic control and can do what you want. Um, <laughs> So Which is beautiful. I, I love it. It was about two years ago uh, at New York Comic Con, and I, um, I was, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I can, I'm a fan of the Song of Ice and Fire book series. I have podcasted about it and whatever, but I was having such a moment of being like, I am so tired of Eurocentric fantasy stories of like fake medieval fantasy stories. Please, dear God, make it stop. And I'm tired of all the man pain. Like, I, I need to have something different. <laughs> That's so 
sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The man pain. Yes, you're right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and the second I heard that you're laughing hysterically <laughs> for image, I was like, okay, I'm going to bet this is not going to be full of man pain or people in beards or Eurocentric <laughs> fantasy or fake Middle Ages. And boy, that, that is true. This comic is like, I've been trying to explain it to people as being like the cure for the problems with contemporary fantasy right now, because it's like, it, it's, it, you, I, I have seen in some blurbs you have described it as steampunk, but it doesn't feel like, it's so much more than that. It doesn't read as just like steampunk mm-hmm. to me. Like you are setting it in a different time period. It is very, it is very turn of the century, but it's, it, it, mm-hmm. it's very Asian. Um, the art mm-hmm. style that you're, you know, Sana is just very, very unique, and it's this matriarchal society, and it's completely unique. It's completely unique to anything else on the shelves. So, um, what what was it like trying to pitch that to, to Image? Were they like, oh my God, thank God, something completely unique? Because I'm so tired of all this other stuff too. Or was it sort of hard to reason? Um, I, I, you know what, I, I have to say, to Image's credit, to Eric Stevenson's credit, the the pitch session was embarrassingly. Um, bare bones and easy. All I said is, you know, man, I really want to work with Sana again, and she's available. And, you know, I would like to <laughs> do a book set in Asia with monsters. And Eric was like, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I nice. wish I could say that it was more complex than that, um, but actually it was it was really that simple. I mean, that's sort of the beautiful thing about Image, which is that, um, you know, and, and at least in my experience, um, in my experience um, with Monstrous, more or less they gave me the green light and then just said go. And they didn't ask any questions except uh, when do you think this might be out? <laughs> like that, was, yeah. that was really the biggest question. Like what kind of paper do you want to use? When might this be out? And, you know, oh, it's going to be that long? Well, okay. <laughs> um, like that was that was more or less the gist of the conversation. Uh, the amount of creative freedom I've had working on this book, the son and I have had on this book, is astounding. It is staggering. And, you know, uh, it is like, um, it's in some ways it's been, I've, I have as, I've had as much freedom um, in some ways more because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working with, with someone else, but I've had as much freedom working on this book as I, as I would with any novel. No, no one's breathing down my neck. No one's been looking over my shoulder, um, and um, except it's it's better in some ways than I mean I love writing novels. That's a whole other that's a whole other conversation, a whole other set of pleasures. Um, but this has been deeply wonderful because you know it's it's been such a you know it's a collaboration, it's a team effort, and um, and uh, it is. I can't tell you how lovely and how wonderful it is to have had this crazy, crazy, I mean, it's not a crazy idea, but I guess compared to where I was coming from, this this sort of very elaborate, you know, wild idea for this story, and then just be able to do it. No questions asked, just do it. Mm. People keep, keep talking about the world building on this series, rightfully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you really have invented mm-hmm. a new world and a new system, and I don't really see, like, oh, this is that trope or this fits into that slot. Like, it's completely fresh. Uh, like, how do you structure a fantasy world that's just completely hopeful invented and it is not kind of like a commentary on this other pre-existing fantasy world? Um, you know, I, it, that, that just seems <sighs> almost overwhelming to conceive of. 
That's a really good question. Um, in some ways, I was just drawing from a lot of different sources, a lot of different things that I love. Um, and it just came together in really interesting ways. Um, so, you know, let me talk about a couple of these things. Um, for example, um, well, let's take, let's take the, the, let's take the number of women. Let's just take women for a minute and let's, you know, talk about this for a second. I'm sure we'll talk about it more later. Um, I was, I really, I'm really sick and tired of seeing films where they're like a bunch of dudes and like one chick. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the whole Smurfette. There's like there was an essay written about the the whole Smurfette principle, you know, which is um, you know like a village full of Smurfs, male Smurfs, and then one female Smurf. And what is up with that? Like for real, what is up with that? Um, yeah. But this is not. But that's not an unusual thing, and that's the scary part. And you would think from watching film and television that there was a virus that wiped out every single woman in the world except for, you know, like it like uh, took out 30% of us given the numbers, <laughs> the the almost non-existent numbers of us, you know, on screen um, compared to men. And I thought, eh, you know what? This is my book. This is my world. This is my playground. I'm just going to reverse this. I want to tell a story in which the numbers are just the opposite where we've got like five chicks for every, for every one dude. And, there wasn't a virus that wiped out men. There wasn't, you know, some terrible catastrophe, um, you know, that 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 you know, that took out their population. It, this is just the way it is. This is a story um, in which, um, you know, women are the protagonists, and um, and no big, you know, quote unquote, no big deal, um, except mm-hmm. given. Except what's been really interesting and it's been really educational about the response to this um to this this idea and this story and this this aspect of monsters is that you know it's really kind of wild it's really kind of wild that that the only feminist stories that that have been you know like the things that we call feminist you know in in fiction you know in film. There are still stories in which the patriarchy is front and center, in which men are front yeah. and center. You know, like, you know, like, you know, down with the man, or, you know, when we've got, you know, stories in which, you know, men are like oppressing women and women have to fight back, and um, and those are still stories about men, um, and it's the kind of I think in some ways it's the kind of feminism we've become used to, but it's but it's deeply deceptive, um, and I I. I wanted to tell a story in which that wasn't even a question, that wasn't even present, that wasn't even an option for people to think about. It doesn't exist. Like it just—it's completely off the table. Um, and you know, and a story in which all the agency of the characters—it's all about female agency. It's all about the female gaze. Um, it's all about you know. Um, women making impact on the world um because the current the current great lie in our society is that women don't make an impact on the world that's the great lie of patriarchy you know that that the you know um that women you know that we that that we have to be controlled um that our sexuality has to be controlled um and you know and I could go on I go on on mm-hmm. but it, it's I just didn't even, I didn't even, yeah, like, it would have been, it was, it would have just been, it would have, 
hurt my sensibilities, you know, to have that on the page. And so that's why, and there will be male characters in the book. I mean, it's not like men have been erased, but but I didn't want to make this about men. And mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, um, that's why, and, you know, and also, gosh, I mean, I want, it, it just, it's fun. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. At the end of the day, it's so much fun writing a bunch of women. Like, it's so much fun. I love writing women. I love writing about women. It is so much fun writing a book just full of women doing fun shit, you know, and then going on adventures and, like, being warriors or being witches, you know, or, you know, like little fox girls. Like, it's just fun. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I um, like, and there's not enough of it. No, not not at all. And one of the, I I just wanted to follow up on one of the things you also said in terms of like stories that a feminist story is always like kind of being framed in terms of like up to the patriarchy. You also have a a world you're built here that is not where there's a world conflict, and it's not about colonialism. Um, It's not about like here's this one group of people who have gone and colonized this other people. Like, you have a different kind of conflict going on between these two powers, which I, I, which is not what I had expected and kind of became clear to me from when I listened to more of the interviews and had read, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit more about your thought process. But um, it's such an assumption, I think, that, like, that like U.S. readers, I think, make about any time that there's, I guess, like, another cultural world like, depicted in our media that we like read certain things onto it based on our history. And it sounds like with what you're doing in terms of, root, I guess for folks who haven't read this, like rooting a lot of the story with your family's exp- grandparents' experiences during World War II, like in Asia and conflicts between Asian countries, like that just felt like just a, a radical choice to me. Do you mind elaborating yeah, about you know, that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it, no, it's okay. Um, no, uh, World War II, um, I think that if you are Asian American um, of a particular generation, you cannot escape. You could not escape even if you wanted to uh, World War II, um, because even you know it's funny. It's it's a part of it's a part of World War. You know the World War II in the Pacific is not discussed. Um, it's not present in the imaginary as much as World War II in Europe. But the devastation that was wreaked, the the horror, the you know, beyond the beyond a couple big moments of Pearl Harbor and um and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, like the rest of World War Two in the Pacific has been, you know, sort of it's definitely not been erased, it hasn't been forgotten, but it's just not it's not talked about. It's not mm-hmm. talked about in the same way. And it was it was a cataclysmic a cataclysmic war. It was it was violence on a scale that cannot be described. I mean, it can, it can, but it's, um, you know, it was horrific. It was absolutely horrific, the numbers of people who died um, and, you know, and just sort of the atrocities that were committed. The same things that were happening in Nazi Germany, medical experiment, you know, biological experiments, camps, um, you know, all that was happening in China um, and across Asia. And so uh, my grandmother, when she was 14 years old, had to leave her village with her classmates. Um, uh, the, troop, the Japanese troops were coming, and she had to walk across China. Like, she literally had to walk across China. She walked well over a 1,000 miles with her friends um, to reach safety. 
And what's interesting about my grand my, my grandfather was in the Air Force, the Chinese Air Force during this time. Um, uh, but uh, my grandmother, you know, I can't imagine what happened to her on that journey. Um, I only know I know some details. I know I know big things, um, but I, I you know I can only I can only speculate about what it was like day to day. Um, but what I do know is that growing up, she. And in the pictures I would see of her afterwards, um, she always had a smile on her face. I mean, the woman, the woman, I never saw the woman unhappy, which is not to say that she wasn't unhappy, but um, but I spent a lot of time with her growing up. And this was a woman who was filled with life, just boundless, boundless energy, always the biggest smile, always the biggest laugh. And maybe, again, that was hiding tremendous pain but you would never have known it. And mm-hmm. it really raised in my head, you know, because, again, I was always hearing about the war from her, from my grandfather, from my own, my dad, because um, he would hear stories, you know, when he was growing up. Um, but I always thought, man, how does she do it? Like, as a kid, I kind of took it for granted, but as I go older, you know, it was that question of how how do you go through that and, like, bounce, like, you, and then make a full life for yourself after that, and one in which you know you you are fully alive, like you know really like taking advantage of life and just completely unbroken, completely unbroken, not in any way that anyone could see. And so, you know, this idea of putting oneself together after you know finding one's humanity after you've been like dehumanized was was really important and really central to me when I was thinking about the book. Um, and the thing is, you know, it's. When you, know, you brought up the question of of this sort of this of of you know I guess Asian on Asian violence, <laughs> um, oh, but you know, but one must remember that that Japan also saw itself as colonial power, mm-hmm. and um, and so colonialism actually is colonialism is is a part not like a it's a part of monstrous not in a, not in a huge way but it's it's there this question of colonialism of of racism of slavery of what it means to commodify you know a race another kind of people um you know what does it require when when you want to commodify someone when you want to own someone as a slave and do really horrible things to them you have to dehumanize them the only way you can uh, you can mentally allow yourself to do such terrible things is to is to purposely you know deliberately um take away their humanity that's the only way you can do it um and you know on on that kind of large scale every day over and over and over again and it's what happened you know it's what happened during World War two the Chinese you know the Filipinos the Koreans they were dogs. They were animals, you know, and it made it real easy, real easy to to kill them. Same thing in Europe, you know, the Jews, people of color, you know, um, the gypsies, animals, you know, subhuman. And, uh, and that's what it takes. And that is, you know, that's what's been done. And it's still happening. This is not an old phenomenon that we have somehow escaped, that we haven't, we haven't evolved um, we're, we are still doing this all over the world right now, you know, and um, and that was something that I really wanted to 
think about and talk about in the book. Um, I didn't want to shy away from it. You know, it's funny because I was being asked today about violence because the book, the first issue of Monstrous, is very, very violent. Um, it's it's grim. It's gruesome. Um, and uh, it was... And upcoming issues don't really get... I mean, I won't say they, they get much better, um, but I have to say, like, every single thing, you know... Every single act of violence was something that I thought long and hard about, and that was not something that I necessarily just made up out of my head. Like a lot of this stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, these acts come from history books, um, from, you know, documented cases of, you know, people of of atrocities. And um, I really, you know, I, I, um, it's a fantasy story, but it's a fantasy story that's very much rooted in um, sort of the realities of conflict and war and slavery and racism um, and to some degree colonial, colonialism. Um, because colonialism, you know, it's, there, you know, there's a lot of different ways to describe it, but in my head I think of it as as, um, as an exertion, you know, of, of power, of, of people taking control, of imposing themselves on, on another, on an entire, not just on, on individuals, but like an entire country, an entire race, an entire culture, um, and absorbing it and, you know, um, stealing from it. Um, but, uh, and that's, that happens, that happens in Monstrous. A lot of things happen in Monstrous. This is a book that, again, when you talk about, like, the complexity of it and how I put this thing together, there's so many different sources, so many different sources and so many things. And I, I wonder sometimes if it's not, you know, if it's less the world, you know, maybe, you know, the, it's, it's, in some ways, it was less the world building and more of the ideas um, that I that I wanted to bring to the book that maybe make it feel more different than it is. Um, not to downplay the, the world building at all, because that, there's been a lot of that. But um, but yeah, I, I put a lot of thought into this book. Yeah, it, it's amazing to hear you talk about all that. And in college, I was a poli sci student and focused a lot on. Um, you know, East Asian politics and learning about the history is something mm-hmm. I never knew about. So, I mean, I think I took an entire course on Nanjing alone. Um, oh, so here, my gosh. Nanjing is like, that is the the horror of all horrors. Yeah, I was just trying to, I was I aming a lot on kind of being like, no, you just, just look this up and you'll know exactly what she's mm-hmm. talking about. It's it's mm-hmm. beyond disturbing. Um, and for folks mm-hmm. who don't know, do research and look it up. It's not told a lot in history and it's it should um, so on the world building question, um, you know, how much of that have you actually done, and how much like was Sana involved in it? You know, do you have like maps made out? Did you actually come up with like a timeline? Because the first issue does an amazing job of like referencing things before, but not kind of dwelling on it. So you know, there's this long history there, um, but you know, it's, it's relevant in the way that it's driving some motivations, but you don't need to know all this history. I mean, like, really, how much of this world have you created, past, you know, past, present, and I would even say future? Um, you know, I, I would say um, quite a bit. I mean, not, I won't say everything, because uh, I, I must confess, for better or for worse, I am the kind of writer who likes being surprised. Um, I like surprising myself, and I know I know that's a weird thing. You know, you would think as a writer that writers can't be surprised by themselves when they're in the middle of writing, but no, you actually can. Um, you know, you'll be like, I'll be in the middle of writing something, and all of a sudden, a new idea will come to me. 
you know, based off of the work I'm doing. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, okay, that would actually be really cool. And so I like I like leaving room for sort of spontaneity. Um, so I'm always a little wary of over-planning. Now, that can backfire. Um, and with comics, that can ba- backfire spectacularly because, again, you can't go back to revise once you've turned in your script. Like, you, you know, three issues in from now, if I'm like, oh, damn it, I should have put something in issue one, like, I'm stuck. Like, I'm sorry, but, like, I'm just, you know, I'm down I'm down the river. Like, it's, it's, that's, it's too late. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, planning is required. But, um, but I... But I do. I know. I know quite a bit. I know quite a bit, and um, it was really interesting because, you know, I was hammering out all this stuff, and um, we talked a lot about the creature design, and um, because that was going to be a central part of of the book. You know, what the monster, what the monsters, the monstra, monstra, monstrum look like, and um, and uh, Solana turned in these 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 drawings of these things. And I took one look at them, and I sat back and I said, "Okay, uh, this story is now going in a completely different direction because oh. I cannot stand I cannot stand to not have these creatures in this book. Like the designs were so powerful and so stunning that um, I really had to reevaluate the direction I was taking the story because." Uh, it, the, the direction I was going, it, it, it was, you know, it would have been the same, similar themes, but they, it wouldn't have accommodated um, in the same way the work that she was doing. And so I had to really reevaluate certain things and, and alter some of the world um, in order to do that. And it was totally worth it because her, the beauty and the power and the sort of the, the life that she brings to the, the work and the world and these characters is like breathtaking. Really, really breathtaking. I mean, I think, I think readers, you know, these, you know, people will be able to see these these designs as the series continues. Um, And uh, you've already seen some of them. Um, You know, I think towards the end of the book, uh, you see one of the the old dead gods, um, and uh, that was one of the designs she presented me with. And I was just like, oh, okay, I surrender. I surrender to you. Like, I, I just give up. Like, that's just too beautiful. Absolutely. I mean, do you have, like, a show Bible of the sorts? Like, of, of words and places that have been invented and maps that have already been made that were early in the there creation is. of the story? Yeah, there's a map. And actually, what's funny is, um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but at the end, the very end of issue two, um, people will see... A fragment of of the map, um, and and uh, again, I, I I don't know how much to even it's it's this funny little it's this funny little thing that was this random thought I had. And I thought it'd be okay, you know, because there is a lot of world building in this book, and there's a lot of world, and um, and so I I just put in this little one page little one page thing at the end of issue two that I hope people will find amusing um, that that sort of elaborates on, you know, a certain aspect of the world, and you'll see, like, a glimpse of a map there. Um, but, you know, I do have this notebook where I've been writing down ideas and, or, or I mean, the names of places and, and the names of races and, and cities and things, and it's probably not as I'm probably not as diligent as I should be. I have a bad habit of kind of, like, just letting everything sit inside my head. Um, but with a story this big, it's actually... Uh, it's, it's actually become very important for me to, to write all this stuff down. 
Is there a, a, there's a name of the main character? Actually, I want to make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Micah? Micah, yes. Micah. Is, is there inspiration for her particular name that you can tell me, or is that, like, top secret? So? Uh, no, um, she's actually, it's, you're the first person to ask, actually. Um, she is, uh, um, part of her name is um, is named after our, our goddaughter. Mm. <laughs> um and so, um, not you know, not the full name, but part of it. Part of her name is based off the name of our goddaughter, and uh, it just felt um, like a good, strong, powerful name. It felt like a real name. It felt like a sincere name, um, you know, a name that had a little bit of life, and that that really felt like part of the character. Because if the one thing about naming characters is uh, naming characters, naming places, um, you know. Like for you, for me as the writer, I I need to feel like those names are part of the character's life. You know, like there's some names, you know, like Micah. I couldn't have named her like I couldn't have named her Harriet. You know what I mean? Like that just right. that wouldn't have, yeah. that wouldn't have felt right. But there's some names that feel right and they feel natural. And I went through actually like a bunch of little a bunch of different names, um, and um, you know, thank God one of them didn't work um, because Micah was just so much better. <laughs> Hmm. Well, one other question I had in terms of like character design is, and this is something that I, I, I don't come from like a, a manga background, so I, this is something mm-hmm. I've learned from like other critics who've spoken about this. We have um, like U.S. comics readers who like think about everything in terms of like American comics. Like when we look at a lot of Asian comics and we see people with like blonde hair or certain features, like we just read them as white because we pursue everybody's white because we're white. Um, mm-hmm. And it would t- somebody had to be like, so yeah, Sailor Moon is actually not supposed to be a white girl. Like she's supposed to be right. Asian, and these are the symbols that are used to represent that in the comic. And I'm like, ah, oh, mm-hmm. my Anglo-centric view strikes again, and I am ignorant about such things. <laughs> and I was really thinking about that a lot when I was looking at your book because we know the importance of this being placed in Asia, um, mm-hmm. and about you know the characters being female and that importance and. You know, I, I've been talking about this with folks as being like this is a comic where like the characters are all people of color, um, but they're also drawn in this very like stylized way. And I was wondering like if you guys had conversations around how you wanted to handle representation of race, like in a fantasy world where who knows if the continents or anything even match up with the world that you and I live in now. But like, you know, questions of how race is portrayed in, in the fantasy world, especially when people in America have a tendency everything is white, sort of sounds like a, a challenging. Not to crack. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's as simple as making a decision just to have people of color in your book. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. you don't really, a person doesn't have to overthink it that much. You can just actually say, you know what, I want this book to be populated with a bunch of people of color. And, you know, Asia, Asia has always been a very cosmopolitan place that has attracted many different kinds of people. Um, and it is not, uh, it is not like, one does not need to, um, you know, stray far um, from reality at all, at all, um, to to create an alternate Asia in which uh, in which there, you know, it's in which it is filled with incredible diversity. Um, and so, yeah, like um, I didn't really overthink it too much. Um, you know, there wasn't some long drawn out conversation. Um, I just said, you know what? Let's. Um, when I would describe characters, you know, I, and I just told Sana, I said, listen, um, every character in this book needs to be a person of color. 
period. And, um, and you know, every now and then we'll see like a like a, a small exception, you know. But um, but really, I would say like ninety nine percent of the people that show up in this book are people of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you guys still there? I guess, yeah, no, I'm just sort of thinking about because it's sort of the thing is it's, sort of, it's hard sometimes just like like Western audiences just have a tendency to read everybody tell them like it's over like, the head like that they're not. Well, you know it's the same oh, thing where like everybody who like all these stupid people were flipping out when they found out that an African-American actress was cast as Rue in The Hunger Games, which of course she was because the character was described very clearly as being a black person in the comic, I'm sorry, in the book. Um, so like there's this this like thing amongst just a lot of readership where they just read everybody as white even if they're very clearly not supposed to be. Yeah, but you know what? I'm not writing for those people. You know, I'm writing <laughs> for the kids. I'm writing, but I'm writing for the kids who who are hung. Again, this is talking about what we said earlier in the conversation, talking about hunger. Um, and I'm writing for the kids. I'm writing for the girls of color. I'm writing for just people in general who are hungry to see, hungry to see people of color, hungry to see themselves represented on the page. And they will get it, and they will see it, and they'll feel it. And, you know, for the people who don't get it, for the people who, you know, just see white people everywhere, like even when a character's black, okay, well, you know, oh. I, you know, I hope you enjoy the rest of the story. Um, but, you know, but that part of it doesn't have to be for them. But the rest, you know, for, the, for you know, that's the people who, who see it, who need it, you know, who appreciate it, great. Like that's, this book is for them. And again, I want to clarify, you know, not every book has to be for everyone. Um, and you can read a book and enjoy it immensely without reading race into it. You can read a book like Monstrous and enjoy it immensely without reading gender into it. Like this is not to say this is exclusionary. Um, but you can also read this book and read gender into it. You can read this book and read race into it. Um, and that's great, too. And the thing is, you, the thing is, like, oh, go ahead. No, continue. Sorry. Well, no, uh, you know, listen, we're living in a country that whitewashes everything. Like, really, for real. Like, Ghost in the Shell is going to be played by white actors. Um, you know, we are always having yellow face. Like, Aloha, mm-hmm. you get this mixed race, you know, Asian woman who is played by, like, you know, um, is it Emma? Was it Emma Roberts? Emma? Emma Stone. I can't remember her yeah. name. Emma Stone. Yeah, Emma Stone. Who, no, I yeah. like. Yeah, no, yeah, she's Scandinavian, and I like Emma Stone, but she ain't. She ain't mixed race, okay? Um, yeah. And this is this happens all the time, all the time. We are so used to be, you know, having our, you know, our entertainment whitewashed for us that you know, unless like it's 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 as if Hollywood doesn't. I mean. Hollywood doesn't know any other way. And this whole idea, you know, every now and then we'll we'll hear discussions of universal stories. Um particularly with in regard to Ridley Scott. He's talking about his universal uh-huh. his universal stories. Um and and universal stories are are code for casting white people. Um because apparently you can't tell a universal story with people of color. Um, so again, this is this is part of the fabric of our of our society, and these are difficult conversations to have. People don't want to talk about race. Talking about race in this country is is 
deeply fraught um, because there's so many ways that people are afraid it can go wrong. And no one wants to be called a racist. No one wants to say, you know, no one wants to be like, oh, I said something stupid and now everyone thinks I'm a racist. Well, you know what? Okay. You know, listen, we all go through a ton of growth, like, and around these conversations. Ten years ago, like, tw- you know, 20 years ago, when I was in high school, I couldn't talk about race. I could barely, you know, no one was permitted to talk about race. If you talked about race, you were a troublemaker. And so it was easier just to not talk about, to not even, like, have it on your radar. And, you know, if if you talked to me about race back then, I probably, you know, I, I God knows what I would have said. And now, like, you know, but so people grow and they change. And they, they see new ways of living and they, they open up their eyes and, you know, to and they understand you know, in different ways, like maybe what their privilege is in ways that maybe they didn't before. Either way, mm-hmm. um, regardless, it's important to have these conversations because if we don't have them, if we allow, like, silence doesn't make it go away. Silence mm-hmm. doesn't make discrimination go away. Silence doesn't lessen the size of racism. Let, silence doesn't, you know, you know, make all the trauma disappear. Um, it just allows it to grow in different ways. Um, and so the only way to, to handle these things, the only way to, to, to deal with them, no matter how painful, is to address them head on. Mm-hmm. So I've got a, I mean, you're tackling tons of issues um, within the comic. One, you know, I, I don't think anyone's asked you before, uh, and it kind of stood out to me, was the comic really blends like magic and technology together. Um, mm-hmm. And there's usually a lot of statements being made when you see worlds like that. Was that was that just the world, or were you actually are you kind of going to dive into you know that concept of technology, its impact on the world? And the other was like, do you have oh, yeah. rules rules set up for this world as far as like the magic? And, you know, have you kind of thought through how that works? Yeah, I have. I how, mean, how um, but the thing is, at the, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I guess as deep as I need to, um, you know. I, I wish and that's not meant to be a flippant answer. It's just, it's just that's kind of, unfortunately, that's just kind of the way it is. Um, you know, the thing is, I've always been fascinated with the idea of science and magic, and how, how, um, to some people, science might seem like magic. You know, if we went back in time and you know, we're driving around, and someone saw a car, um, someone saw a flashlight, et cetera, their first thought, given what particular, you know, age they were from, might probably wouldn't necessarily be science. You know what I mean? Like, you'd be like, oh, shit, you know, the gods are, you know, like, this is, this is magic. So, um, so I, you know, that's something that I was really interested in, um, this idea of, of you know, science, this idea of actual magic, of the supernatural. Um, you know, both of these things being present in this world, both of these things having power. Um, and And that, you know, one group, even though it's, even though one group is is scientific, they're still able to draw power from the supernatural side of their of their enemy. Like you know, it's just because that's kind of the you know life, the real life, the real world is complex. Like it's not just one thing or the other. There's always seems to be like a merging of the two. You know, or mer- not. I'm not in this case. I'm not even talking about like magic and science. I'm actually just talking about like life in general like you know whatever whatever polar opposites whatever we're dealing with there always seems to be like a way to merge them and you know we're able to integrate them in really you know 
disparate ideas in really interesting ways. And I wanted to play with that. You know, it's, again, it's not black and white. Nothing is black and white. You know, there's always um, not in this book and not not in real life. And I I liked I liked that idea when it came to 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 how I'm handling um, science and magic and the supernatural. It kind of sticking on the the science part. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I I did a lot of research in your background and all that, and I know you did work in in or involved with like biotech issues and genetically modified mm-hmm. food. And there's that scene um, with the kind of dissection and this like really you can tell they're kind of like dissecting people to kind of build something or modify something like, you know, was, is that kind of um, building off of your history of that or your experience in that world? Yeah. Or am I totally? Well, I've always been fascinated. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, no, no, no. I've, I'm, I've always been fascinated with, with genetic engineering, with eugenics, with, um, you know, with, um, with bioengineering. Um, that stuff is just, it's fun for me. Like I just actually like reading about it. It's, you know, it's a hobby. Um, and it's been a hobby for as long as I can remember. Um, and, uh, actually at this point, probably more than 20 years. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, it just felt natural, um, really to, to bring that into the book. Um, because again, biological experiments aren't new. Like it's it's just not new. I mean, how many biological experiments did the, the, the Nazis perform on Jews, and same thing with the Japanese on the Chinese. <laughs> like, man, gosh, like it's—I don't even want to think about it. Like, it was what was done was awful, and the same thing happened in America. You know, America, like eugenics. You know, the 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 Nazis didn't invent eugenics. Eugenics was was invented in America in the Midwest. Yep. Okay, that's when this conversation began, and um. And so, uh, yeah, like that's that's just something that's that again, you know, of of a million things that have been on my mind for many years. Um, that is that is one of them. I would definitely think it's one of the more ter- terrifying depictions that you know you really have in the whole book so far. So mm-hmm. it's really really affecting. Mm. I, I, actually, this is sort of a, a random. Pushing, but the, the decision to have the first issue, you know, be extra long was really worked really well because there was just so much material to go through. Um, but it definitely is an unusual choice because of like, you know, the, the price point being higher. And we're always explaining to people like, yeah, you're getting totally like like so much more stuff in here than otherwise. Uh, and then mm-hmm. but it looks like future issues are going to be kind of more normal comics length. Um, yes. So uh, yeah, I was kind of curious, like how you came up with the idea of doing the extra long opening issue. Um, unfortunately, I, again, I, I wish I could say that you know I had some master plan, but really, um, the first issue just came in really long. I mean, the first I just kept writing it, like I, I there and there it, I didn't reach a good endpoint until page sixty-six. <laughs> mm. And you know, I, I took a look at this thing, and I was like, um, okay, and. Um, and it was interesting. It was it was gently suggested to me that perhaps I should break it up into three issues, and no one pushed. But it was just gently suggested mm. um, because it, it was a really big issue. And I know even I had um, even I had some concerns over the size and the price point. Um, but I asked around, and it, 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 this isn't the first time it's been done. Um, and you know, publishing an extra extra you know oversized first issue. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? Uh, there wasn't there wasn't a good break in the story in that first issue. 
And I thought, you know, what? I'm just going to go for it. What the heck? I'm just going to see what happens. Um, put it out there. Hopefully, people will take a chance on it. Um, that the size, you know, given, you know, like, gosh, Marvel books are expensive too, and they're like, yeah, you know, a third the size. So I was thinking, okay, you know what? Maybe people will just give it a chance, and they'll think it's, you know, they're getting more for their buck. And fortunately, I think that I think that actually maybe happened. So yeah, um, it was sold out yeah. of my store, like completely sold out of my mm-hmm. store. Um, so well, that's that's actually really great to hear. Um, but I uh, so that that worked out. Um, again, no master plan, but just me tending to write long and deciding. Okay, well, we'll just we'll just stick with this and see what happens. Cool. Yeah, with the, sticking to it worked. I was say with the the writing, um, I mean, and the, the art being as detailed and as amazing it is. Like, how long does it actually take to do an issue? Like, it's, it's one of those comics that you pick. Like, there's no way this takes as long as this one. It's got to take longer. Um, I mean, well, it's just amazing. yeah, I mean, a sixty-six page issue. Oh yeah, thank yeah. you. Well, Sana is like a genius. Um, she's also one of the fastest people I've ever, uh, fastest artists I've ever met. Um, but still, the first issue being the first issue, and because this was establishing a whole new world, took about three, I think, you know, we gave her about three to four months to draw it. Because it was, again, it wasn't just drawing the first issue, it was about establishing um, a bunch of really important visual um, visual cues, you know, uh, that were going to come in later. Um but you know, again, like subsequent issues, you know, are, are about twenty to twenty, like twenty-two pages long, um, which is standard. And so, um, and thank goodness, because poor Sana, you know, I don't want to like that would I don't want to cause her actual pain. Like I don't yeah. want to stress her out. <laughs> but um, she's such a trooper. Her work is just so stunning. Like it's unlike anybody else's, and doesn't have that sort of generic fantasy art look at all. I feel like no, she's she's amazing. Too. I think this is a book that's going to be like in some ways pick up on sort of the saga audience where this mm-hmm. where like all these people you could never get to them to read a comic, like we were able to get them to read saga because it didn't look like a normal comic and because it had mm-hmm. like a very female viewpoint in it and a more diverse cast. And I feel like, you know, mm-hmm. the tone on this is very different, although they are both very much about war. Um, but uh, that I think this has a potential in the same way, you know, like to be a comic that non-comics readers are going to really just jump into. Well, that's kind. I, you know, at the end of the day, I think what Sana and I, as as I think what any, I think what any artist would tell you, any creator would tell you is, you know, at the end of the day, you're just trying to tell a really good story. You're trying to tell the best story you can. And then you have to let go of it. Like I have no control. Like once the story is done, it's out in the world, I give up control. I surrender. I have no I have no say over who likes it, what people think of it. Um, it's just out there. And then I just keep it moving. I just keep moving on. And um and I've been deeply I mean both of us have been deeply, deeply grateful and humbled. Um, so appreciative of the response and support that the book has gotten. I mean we can't even it's words words really just fail us. Like we just really appreciate it. Um, because I mean, for me personally, I can't speak for Sana, but for me, I I really wasn't sure. Like I I didn't I didn't know how the book would be received because I was again I'm really close to it. Like I I've you know after I'm done writing an issue, I don't know if it's any good or not. Like I actually wasn't sure if the first issue was any good. I was kind of like, <laughs> uh, I've been yes. working on this for a while. Yeah, I was like, I've been working on this for a while, and like I just don't know. I just I I wasn't sure if if people would get it. 
Um, and thank, thank goodness, um, thank goodness people did. Um, so, you know, and hopefully, hopefully that will continue, but, but regardless, again, um, they're just, you know, after all these years of, of being a writer, I've, I've come to the, the, the conclusion, you know, the only conclusion that will save my sanity, which is that I can't control this stuff. You know, I just, at the end of the day, I can't control it. All I can control is my work at the time I'm doing it. And then once the book is out, that's it. And you just, you know, you just don't lose any sleep. Um, but, you know, thank goodness this this time it turned out okay. I think it turned out a bit better than okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We gave you guys some of the highest ratings we've given anything on the site. So. Yeah, so, there's very... Know. I will say there's very few times that I get a review copy, which, you know, for those who don't know, we, we the company tends to send us them. And in this case, um, whoever is repping you, who is awesome, I think Bill is the name, um, sent it to me. And there's very few times that I've sat there and read something and said, oh, my God, I need to go and get this immediately in physical form. Um, this oh, was sweet. that time. I saw it. I was like, no, I need a copy. Um, so, yeah, I think that's everything right there. <laughs> Thank you very uh, much. It's very kind. Uh, yeah, we gave this a 10 out of 10, and we don't really do yeah. that much. So. No. <laughs> no. We're kind of stingy on that one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so we we have you for the hour, and you know we don't want to you know, suck up too much of your time because you're very, very busy. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we always like to, to wrap up the show and, and you know, give you a chance to, to plug things. Um, I'm, I would imagine issue two has got to be within a week or two of coming out, and then if you want to plug your you know website or social network or any of that where people can uh, uh, connect with you. you know, feel, feel free to go for it. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so uh, let us see. What can I plug? All right. So issue two, they originally was going to come out the first week of December, um, and then they pushed it to the second week because they wanted, you know, this is just backs. So this is like publishing stuff. Um, uh, they wanted to give the retailers um, some time to review their sales data. Um, so <laughs> issue two is coming out the second week of December. Um, that same week, I will also, or not actually the same week, the weekend before, I will be signing in Austin, Texas at Dragon's Lair Comics. If you guys, mm, if anyone out there store. listening is in, in Austin, Texas, um, you can Could come be. see me and Greg Pack. Yeah. Ooh, so me and Greg you. Pack will be signing together um, on December 5th at, at Dragon's Lair Comics. And then um, on the 28th, which I guess is coming along pretty quickly. I will be signing at Ah Yeah Comics in Muncie, Indiana, um, and you can go to their website to find out the time and the location. So, as far as websites go, um, let's see here. There's MarjorieMLu.com, which is my main website. I'm also on Twitter at Marjorie Marjorie M. Lou. <laughs> <laughs> at Marjorie M. Lou. And um and you know, that's that's me when it comes to social media. Nice. Um, great. Thank you. Got everything covered. No, so, I, yeah, thank I you. saw her on Twitter because like I couldn't I couldn't tweet at her like my praise. I was like trying to find her on Twitter no. and she wasn't there. Well <laughs> no, but Sana's Sana's not on Twitter, but Sana has a Tumblr page. Oh um, and it is Sana Takeda Art dot tumblr dot com and she if you go there she's um every now and then she posts uh art from monstrous she posted a really really adorable little sketch of kippa and the cat 
um, really, really cute. And um, so she's 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 active online. And I suggest everyone go and check out her blog. Nice. Well, we will look that up and and post it out for folks. So, um, thank you for joining mm-hmm. us. It's been it's been awesome, and uh, seriously, it's been one of our monsters has been one of our favorite you know debuts and comics of the year. So, I think Alana and I are both mm-hmm. super excited to read the second issue. You guys are so yeah. kind. I really we really really appreciate it. I mean, the whole team. Just thank you guys. For real. Well, thank you for putting thank it. Thank you. And thanks <laughs> yeah. for joining us. I've been wanting to have you. No, I actually, I, I was just going to say one last thing. I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for years because I always see you at New York Comic Con and you always say stuff that I'm like, yes, what she said is right. We have to have her on. So I was really <laughs> glad the opportunity to book you for this. This has been one of my ambitions for quite some time. So I hope thank you had you. a good time and I hope you'll consider coming back in the future. Oh, of course. I would love to. Thank you so much, guys. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a great night. Thanks. Appreciate it. You too. And happy Take Thanksgiving. Care. Yes, happy Thank Thanksgiving. You. you as well. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. 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 Woohoo, we can check that one off. We have our list of people we want to get, and we finally get to mark, mark her off. <laughs> I know. I guess I was like, wait, how did I get that far into the interview without mentioning that to her? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I have this list, and you're on it. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. I can make jokes mm-hmm. about having lists and, and marking people off and binders and stuff, but we'll, we'll save that for another time. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, um, that was, that was awesome. Oh, so we've got um, another show. Monday is going to be our second episode of uh, Jonesing for Jessica uh, with our guests. And that should be posted up. I believe I will have that up uh, tomorrow uh, on blog talk for you to um, check out and remind yourselves. Uh, for those who don't know, we've got a uh, second show going on about Jessica Jones. Um, it will be one show per episode for Jessica Jones. Um, the first one was last night, so the second one will be next Monday. Uh, it's called Jones for Jack- Jessica. Uh, the first show is posted up on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and up on our website on SoundCloud, so you can download it and listen to it on demand whenever you'd like. Uh, if you came in too late for this episode or just want to listen to it again, um, it will be on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud uh, relatively soon. SoundCloud will be probably tomorrow. Um, oh, and just have, uh, guys, you should see who our guest is. Yes, yes, please go with the de- oh, you intro because you I did an awesome job yesterday. Um, yes, our guest is going to be someone who I wanted to have on the podcast for ages. It's going to be Washington Post TV critic Alyssa Rosenberg, who's easily one of my favorite critics in popular culture, period. So I'm ecstatic that we're going to have her to talk about the show with us. She's so fucking smart and good at this shit. Um, go Google her right now if you don't already read her. Um, and, uh, yeah, she'll be joining us to talk about Jessica Jones. Yay! Yeah, it's it's going to be a lot. It'll be, it'll be fun. And, uh, like, just for a disturbing show, it's kind of weird to be like, hey, it's going to be a really fun conversation. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh conflicted on that I guess a little bit. Uh so yeah, so we'll be back next Monday with a um specialized uh show for Jonesing for Jessica. Um for everyone have a great Thanksgiving. Um we will be doing our regular thing throughout the week at graphicpolicy.com. Uh you can find us at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all at Graphic Policy. Keep it nice and consistent. So until next time, thanks for listening. We always appreciate it. I'm Brett I'm Ilana. Keep it geeky.